Let's start with a commonplace observation. The increasing pace of technological innovation has changed, even revolutionized, virtually every walk of human life, the practice of war, very much included. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that for several generations now, arguably since the German invasions of Poland and France, the better part of a century ago, the progress of technology and warfare has been on the side of the offensive and of maneuver. That the speed and coordination, that motorization, aviation, communications technology, sensors, precision targeting, basically everything that has changed the face of the battlefield as we know it, has contributed to the impression that the static world of fortifications and set positional defense that so dominated the history of warfare up until the middle of the 1900s is utterly obsolete. But if that's the case, how are some very old-fashioned seeming positional defensive arrangements maintained by Russia on Ukrainian soil holding up this summer's counteroffensive? Let's discuss. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. For maps, photos, and more School of War content, follow along on Instagram, at School of War. Just tap the link in the show notes and subscribe. Hi, I'm Aaron McLean. Thanks for joining School of War. I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor David Betts. He is Professor of War in the Modern World at King's College London. He is the author of numerous articles and publications, including recently a fascinating essay in Engelsberg Ideas called Russian Fortifications Present an Old Problem for Ukraine. David, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks very much. Thanks for the invitation. Before we get to your, your article and the situation in Ukraine, just talk a bit for a second, if you would, about how looking at Ukraine fits into your, your broader area of focus. What is it that you work on when you say that you, you work on modern war? Well, it's it's actually not all that complicated. I tend to be work on con issues of contemporary contemporary warfare, and so that you know my eye tends to be on wherever the war is at any given point of time. the The main thread of my research, my my work over well over most of my career, has been on the intersection of technology and war, and so and I I do tend to touch not just on on strategy but dip down occasionally into uh, operations and tactics and 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 the like and so you know my my recent interest in in Ukraine essentially stems from it sim very simply being a current instance of of major interstate war and so like many others in in the in in the community that's the essence of the interest in it I would add, though, that I, I started off as a Soviet military analyst. I'm just old enough to have begun my academic career at the tail end of the Soviet Union. And so I've had a longstanding interest in, in the region, in Russia, in Ukraine particularly. Well, let me, let me ask you a very broad question. We're recording here on Thursday, August the 17th. What is your general assessment of how the Ukrainian counteroffensive is going? My general assessment is that it's gone gone poorly for the Ukrainians. That it's well, we're well over two months now into the counteroffensive, and it's made essentially nugatory gains. You know, a handful of 
villages in the crumple zone of the of the Russian fortified strategic complex in South Ukraine, and it's been enormously costly. the 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 casualties are in the tens of in the tens of thousands. And while there there have been a few gains, they've been very very small and balanced in in, in fact by some Russian gains in other sectors of the of the front. So in general terms, no, it's 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 not not at all satisfactory or even close to adequate from the Ukrainian perspective. They've come nowhere close to what to achieving what presumably was the goal of the the offensive to cut out, you know, to cut out probably to to cut off Russian land access through South Ukraine to Crimea. They're 100 kilometers away, over 100 kilometers away from achieving that. They're really sort of on the edge, perhaps, of the first belt of major defenses. There's so, generally speaking, I think the results have been very disappointing from the Ukrainian perspective, very worrisome, no doubt, to NATO as time runs down and as Ukrainian manpower and equipment is degraded. And I, I think that the Russians are probably feeling considerably more confident than they were six months ago. Can I ask, without revealing too much in the way of trade secrets, how it is that you track Ukrainian progress? Because I find following the war, they're not with, with quite the level of, uh, of attention that I think you do. It's it's easy for me to find and, and, and read and profit from pretty high quality reporting and analysis on Russian dispositions. Mm-hmm. But the same places that are doing that high quality analysis for, for defensible and understandable reasons don't provide the same level of analysis of their view or don't publicize the, their, their views of Ukrainian dispositions, intent and so forth. How is it that you're tracking actually what's what's going on? I find it quite difficult to find out what's going on from the Ukrainian perspective. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll I'll say up front that I, I I doubt that I'm you know I'm work I'm, there's no trade secret I'm you know aside from aforementioned distant connection to people on the ground who lend you know or people in the country who lend a certain perspective although you know very rather narrow in particular I'm looking at the same things that 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 you might be looking at that is to say open source open source material I do the I would say that this is a war that's been in, intensely reported, very, very visual. It's the most highly filmed conflict I think that there's 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 ever been. You know, we've had many examples of that recently. So there's there's no end of of, of imagery to to view. You could spend the rest of your life, I think, looking at combat reels. It's but the the problem is what you how you interpret those things how you put them into context and that is that is enormously com- uh, complicated by the fact that both sides are you know actively manipulating the information space it's a central part of you know i think practically everyone agree that that managing the perception of conflict is is now part and parcel is central to the conduct of of modern war both sides are are doing that, so you have to. So, in in short, I'm looking at the same things that 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 anybody else might might do. I bring to it a bit more baggage than than most. Maybe having 
spent a good number of years thinking about the area and working out how, thinking about how war works, but it's still fundamentally the same data. I have though, I, I do recommend to my own students that they switch off the mainstream. They simply switch off the mainstream media, which has been by and large dismal and largely a waste of, largely a waste of time, which is astonishing, frankly, but that, that is, that is where we are. You, you have to be intensely skeptical. The most useful thing to my mind that I'd so, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reading the same things as, as, as most people are trying to be skeptical about it. You try to do diligence on what you see. You try, try to be cautious about what is being said by whom you, you apply elementary principles of qui bono and, 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 and so on. And ideally you reserve judgment. There's a lot of things we simply don't know. And a lot of things presented as things which are known, which are, are really more in the nature of hope, rumor. And so we need to guard against those. One uh, thing that I am I'm happy that I did do and have done consistently from the beginning was I followed the Ukrainian mental, I followed four telegram channels daily throughout the, throughout the conflict. Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, the Russian Ministry of Defense, the most partisan Ukrainian telegram channel and the most partisan Russian telegram channel. Very often on those things, you're looking at the same pictures, the same stories, but you get somewhat different perspective and looking at them over, looking at them over time or, or in the moment you can draw some tentative conclusions about how those things contrast what each, each side is saying. And over time, you can draw some, some conclusions about the techniques of information control that they're employing and their relative degrees of veracity. But that's about, that's about it. So look, sorry, a bit, bit of a long answer there, but there's, there, there's honestly no trade secret. No, no, I, I, I take your point. And on, on your point about the, the media, I woke up this morning. I think the latest news is there's a particular village that's been captured. And, you know, I say this as a, I, I gather like you, a supporter of the Ukrainian cause as somebody who's hostile to, to the Russian invasion. I'm, I suppose I'm, I'm happy that this village was captured. But on the other hand, when you consider the scale of the war, the size of the front, the idea that the good news of the day is a village was captured is itself quite bad news, right? And you have that, I mean, I, I find myself kind of constantly processing the information through through that lens. Yeah. You talked, you used a couple of phrases as, as we've spoken, you talk about crumple zone, you talked about a, a defensive complex. We start to get into here, into what your, what your article is about. Talk about the Russian defensive scheme, if you would. How have the Russians planned to hold terrain in Ukraine and, and are they executing on their plan? Okay, great. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, so the f I think the first thing to observe about the Russian fortifications is their field fortifications is the scale of them, which is gigantic. So this is a, this is, you're talking of something over 1500 kilometers of, of contact, not all of which is being, being, being fought over. But if, even if you look at the, just the Southern portion that is being actively fought over through much of it, much of its length fought over or threatened hundreds of kilometers in length. And that is most of all, all of that, which is located in, 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 in the 
formerly Ukrainian-controlled areas, now under Russian control, has been built in the last, effectively in the last, well, mostly in the last half year, actually. And so this, the, this, the, the sheer length is, is, is noteworthy. The second is the, the, the depth. The, the depth varies from place to place, but in the most threatened sectors, particularly in, in, in the South, again, where most of the fighting is now occurring, the depth of the, of the, of the, of the fortified complex is in the tens of kilometers. And it, tend, it consists of, they're often called lines or, or belts. They tend, that are actually not completely continuous. They do, they are linear. They're, and they, they're, while not completely continuous, they are pretty close to continuous. There's a mix of getting down to the details of the conformation of the, of the defensive arrangements themselves. They tend to be a mix of, or tend to be, they are a mix of different sorts of obstacles. The ones that catch the eye, because they're, they're, they're mo- the most readily observable, are things like the anti-tank ditch, which tends to be, which is the usually the forward-facing, or sorry, the the first element of the of the physical defenses. There are sensors and outposts and lisp and, and the like, and potentially other somewhat defended points that might be ahead of the anti-tank line. But the but the anti-tank line is really the beginning of the defensive conformation proper, and that is that's very observable. You can see it from a satellite. You can see it from a commercial satellite. It's very obvious because it's a big, long ditch line in the ground with a, a berm thrown up. So very visible. Usually, in ideally, in doctrine, the, the anti-tank ditch is supposed to zigzag through the, through the terrain. In this case, to look at the current Russian fortifications, it doesn't tend to zigzag. It seems to be, in, in a lot of places, just simply a... A straight line, and that's when perhaps they—that's because they had to dig it more hastily, or perhaps also I think they—that reflects the possibility that they that they they no longer think that they have to actively man the anti-tank ditch. So it tends to have a zigzag in it in the past because at each corner of the zig, you would you would have a small detachment to. Not really to de- actively defend it, but more uh, to 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 watch and to uh, give alarm in case of attack. So they might have decided that in this in in this day and age, with much more ubiquitous overhead surveillance provided by UAVs, commercial drones, or 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 their own more sophisticated military drones like Orlan and the like, that they don't need don't need that. So the first line is your anti-tank ditch. Then you have another linear barrier, which again is an anti-vehicle barrier, which is what people call the dragon's teeth. The dragon's teeth is just simply a complex of cement obstacles. Ideally, these cement obstacles are wired together that give them so that they make them easier, harder, harder rather to push aside. It's not clear. It's not clear the extent or how effectively the Russians have done that. We, we can observe, though, that there are many hundreds of kilometers of, of dragon's teeth barriers. Those are those are those barriers are pretty difficult. Are pretty significant obstacle for non non-tracked light vehicles, 
but can be pushed aside, you know, might be pushed aside by a heavy main battle tank or particularly a main battle tank that is equipped with a plow or, or other devices to, to break through. But the point is that the, with the dragon's teeth is it's, it's just another obstacle to, to slow and to channel one, one's opponent. It's behind the dragon's teeth that you then, that you then get what are the, the, the more actively manned fighting outposts or or strong points now these which aside from unlike the anti-tank ditch and uh, dragon's teeth which are very observable and hard to hide the company st- the the strong points are very irregular in their shape the russians use continuous trench lines so rather than foxholes that are sort of small fighting p- positions they they tend to have continuous trench complexes which give the ability for troops to move from one strong point or, or, or from one part of the strong point to another with a degree of, of protection. But to the maximum extent possible, those, those strong points are very irregular in their shape. It, it depends on the, 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 the terrain that, is, that, that, that they're trying to defend. And the conformation of the ground that they're trying to dominate with fire and ideally they are they're camouflaged as much as as much as possible that's actually turned out to be quite tricky to do throughout much of the ukrainian landscape because of the relative openness of the terrain a lot of it is agricultural land and it is generally speaking pretty flat and so it's it it there, there are lots of examples you can, you can find where you can quite clearly see these these manned strong points of whether of, of varying sizes, but ideally they are they are concealed as much as possible. So in in the case of Ukraine, a lot of the fighting in 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 the in the countryside has the the close quarters fighting is taking place in tree lines in the in the little bit of forested forested areas in between fields and and the like where it is possible to to hide these these entrenchments anyway it's all the art of the possible it is not always possible to hide those entrenchments so that would make those three things together then of course are also there are in this case belts of mines thick belts of, of mines normally and those might those can be in front of the anti-tank barrier in the anti-tank barrier behind the anti-tank barrier probably possibly interspersed in the dragon's teeth themselves it depends you know there the it depends on your the your appreciation of what is the likely place that your enemy is going to attack and how many mines you have available and what the ground what the ground is like it turns out that, and it turns out that, perhaps not surprisingly, or perhaps surprised to some, that Russia has a lot of mines, just a, a colossal number of anti-tank mines, and it has the wherewithal. It has, and it has the wherewithal to deploy these effectively. All of that, which I've just described, it, you know, is effectively, you know, aside from the anti, you know, the anti-tank instrument, it, that's a hundred years old. That these these sorts of you know the, that sort of arrangement would not have would not have mystified Zhukov or or in, or even First World War generals, let let alone Second World War generals. 
A contemporary development that is of note, however, is the more recent, but still decades old capacity of renewing minefields at a distance through air, air or artillery delivered means. So as, you're, as the attacker degrades your minefield through mine clearance or, or simply through, you know, battering their way, their way through it, you can rejuvenate the, def- the, the defense in an active way by creating, by essentially deploying mines aer- aerially, either behind the main offensive so that the breaching force is now separated from its sources of reinforcement and, and potential avenues of, of, of retreat, or you can reinforce uh, areas that that you may have mined relatively lightly, not knowing exactly where the main blow would come uh, to be able to reinforce it very, very much quickly. So there, that's those are the basic elements of, of, of a belt, and then you will repeat those belts. In the case of the in 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 South Ukraine now, where the fighting is going on, there generally speaking agreed to be three main three main belts. Depending how you, you count them, you might add another add another belt. So it's and those are disposed over tens of kilometers in 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 depth. By the time you hit the third belt, the third belt, you will have, have you, if you were to hit the third belt, you would have to have penetrated probably 25, 20 to 25 to 30 kilometers in depth. Now, I, you asked about the crumple zone. And what I'm referring to as the crumple zone is the area, the, the, the area in the, that is before the main fortified section. And that's an area, that's an area which, where you are, you're observing. You have the the capa- the capability to observe enemy movement, or you know preparation to attack and its movement to to contact, and the ability to direct fire towards it. It is it is on your side of the on the defender's side of the line of contact. Put it to put it that way. But it is before their their main defensive line, and most of the fighting. Till, till over the last two months has taken place in that area before the first line of main of main defenses, which is to my point earlier why the in general the the one would say that the results of the offensive so far are are are, are disappointing because they haven't not only haven't they breached they haven't really begun in earnest the efforts to breach the first of what are multiple lines of defense. So that's a really clear and extremely helpful description of, you know, as it were, the machine, the the defensive machine. Can you say a bit about how the machine is designed to work, how it's designed to, to kill, which is to say, you know, you speak of these mines, are the, are, are we, are we, are we, are the Russians attempting to kill Ukrainians primarily with mines are the mines meant to delay and to fix, and then it's really the fires that are doing the killing. Like, just talk about how it works. Right. So the main thing to the main thing to understand, I think, about any given fortification. But this is the current what we're currently talking about is is a terrific example. Is that you 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 have to you have to look at it not as a as a as simply a physical barrier. Right. The, the, the point of the fort is not simply that 
you know, it's some big heavy thing or it's a big heavy block that is hard to batter down or batter through or climb over or dig under. It's more than that. What it is, is that there's why I like to use the term fortified strategic complex, because, because it works in combination, right? It's a complex of elements that are, that are operating in concert to produce a set of tactical dilemmas for the attacking, for the attacker. And that, and that comes from different elements of, of the fortification, the obstacles, all of that I, I was just describing, whether it's the anti-tank ditch, the dragon's teeth, the mines, or the ditches, the trenches themselves, but specifically, particularly the anti-tank ditches and dragon's teeth, those are designed to channel, canalize enemy movement and to slow to slow that movement so that defensive fires can be applied against it in the most efficacious way. Also, you, and you want to have an, a, a range of you, you want to have a, a range of weapons types that are it, that are interacting, right? So the you know a minefield, you know if you if if nobody's shooting at you, then a minefield is not really a problem. You just go slow. You probe where the mines where the mines are. You disarm the mines. You a minefield becomes a problem when. There are weapons pointed at it. So as you slow down, or as you encounter these mines and take some, you know, take some casualties, and now you've got to be recovering that vehicle or recovering those injured troops, or so you are now slowed down in a place where, if the if the defensive position is is well designed, where you are maximally vulnerable to other weapon systems, and those could be a range of types direct fire weapons you know you know machine guns cannons direct tank tank guns certain types of missiles and the like which would cause in this case you know if somebody if i simplify if i'm shooting at you with a machine gun what well, you are and you are in a field your natural instinct is go to find a hole in the ground and jump into it to get away from the bullet fire what i need and if if I, if you're able to do that now you're secure issue you're stuck where you are uh, but i'm not going to hit you with that machine. but now i've got a but if i have an interaction of weapon effects where i'm forcing you to go to ground to slow down to go into the, the ditch and i've got indirect fire that is attacking you from above with a fragmentation and blast effect you're now in a you're now in a what's the term a world of hurt Right, you're in terms of a dilemma is what I, what we would right, have said. So that's the sort of dilemma which uh, fortified those. It's those sorts of dilemmas which the, the 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 fortified complex is is supposed to generate uh, at scale across a large area, and both Soviet and Russian doctrine emphasizes this point very strongly. As indeed does you know well. Everybody, every professional army has has these uh, these, these ideas. There's nothing actually all that mysterious about it. But but Russian and Soviet doctrine perhaps is quite strong on the idea of conceiving of, a, of the fortified complex as, an, as a total fire system. So it, in, which includes the, the, the physical, the static observable physical defenses themselves of a range of, of, of types, and also the, the, the various weapons that are defending it, 
and the command and control and reconnaissance and, and, and other systems which are supporting the integration of, of those effects. The main thing to consider there is, or, or it, an important thing to consider, therefore, is that it's a, you, you might say it's a, it's, it's a network, it's a complex, but also that the, the, the fortification is not designed, it's not expected that, a, that a, a fortified area, that your enemy is simply going to bounce off it, you know, if it's successful. If they attack it, they're just, you know, they're just going to be stopped. Generally speaking, that's not the way the defensive works in modern, modern operations, with the partial exception of things like opposed amphibious landings, where there is that, that, that potential to a greater or lesser extent. With a modern integrated defensive arrangement like I described, you presume that your enemy is going to penetrate at, at places. And, if, and in fact, and, and the, the system is designed, if, if designed appropriately and, 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 and enacted capably, is to deal with penetrations by essentially, you know, your, your enemy produces a salient into your own defensive works, your troops sort of move about it elastically, ideally, and what you then create is what, what Russians often call a fire sack or a, right, which is essentially an area where your, your enemy now is concentrated in, in a salient, slowed by your defensive arrangements and maximally vulnerable to your, your defensive weapons while also being ideally being having its own offensive artillery support that much further from it that much so that's essentially how it's that how it's supposed to supposed to work people often think that or, or i guess i think people sometimes think that fortification is an alternative to combined arms or it's some kind of antithesis to combined arms and and i guess that that would be my final point is that fortification is not is is neither of those things it's an integral part of of combined combined arms op op operations that's the way i that's the way the russians look at it that's the way we used to look we the, the west used to look at it and got out of the habit of of doing so but there, and when, when, when operated correctly, with sufficient resources, it's very, very. It can be, as we can see, it's it can be very, very powerful, even in the twenty first century, with very precise, very powerful direct attack capability, which is more than enough to you know to blast through any particular fixed position. So I take your point that every modern military has some theory of, of the defense. And additionally, that the evidence is that this scheme is working. I think those are both, you know, essentially points that can't really be pushed back upon. But I, I think it's fair to say that there's this, at least in the United States military, certainly in the Marine Corps, there's this sort of opinion about the nature of the defense, its vulnerability to maneuver certainly at scale. And the opinion goes something like basically since the defeat of the Maginot Line, you know, 1940 at the latest, we've known, we've known that digging in, I mean, obviously you're going to be in the defense here and there. It's, un, it's unavoidable. Units are going to reach a culminating point. 
we get all that. But at scale, this notion that you're going to have, you know, theater level defense and stake your your hopes of victory in that. Well, that's obsolete. That's we know we know we know the, the Blitzkrieg showed us that that's just not really that's not the that's not the stronger play. It's not likely to work. And I take your the, the, the force of your argument here is 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 that there's something wrong with that view. Can, can you say more about what people have been getting wrong there? Yeah. So the, the, the case you made, you, you, you just made is, I, I agree, one hears this a lot. It's reflected in doctrine. It's reflected in a good deal of the, of the literature on, on modern warfare takes, takes this view. Maginot, you know, if I, if I say the words Maginot line to someone, even if they don't know what the Maginot line was, they know that Maginot line is, is a metonym in English usage for something that's failed and pointless, kind of equivalent to white elephant. And, and that's just because, you know, right, so the legend of, of Maginot as, as this failed instrument of, of war is so, is so deeply Im, Im embedded. The problem with that is, at the very least, it's overstated. And actually, I'm inclined in most respects to say that it's just plain wrong. It gets the history of Maginot wrong. Maginot line was gone around. The, that was the problem. The, the Maginot line wasn't 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 fought through. No. And in that sense, yeah, okay, Maginot, Maginot failed. It didn't fail as a, as 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 a fortification system. And even in, in in the few places where there was fighting over Maginot forts, the 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 French forces, the French the French forts were very difficult to take, even though the troops manning them were essentially third rate. They were pretty powerful. At the end, and so, you know, well, without going into a bunch of quasi-revisionist history of, of, of Maginot, let's just say, I think that the case for it as the, the, the case against it is a bit superficial. Secondarily, for, to bring it back to the, the American context, people, for, people often forget, and well, you mentioned the Marine Corps, but the U.S. Army ought to remember that the the German field for the German fortifications round Metz, which on, on the other side of the of the Franco-German border, were a massive headache for Patton's army. They held up Patton's army for three months in some of the most savage, difficult fighting of the war. Those fortifications were were late nineteenth century and well, actually mid, mid to late nineteenth century in or in in origin, with 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 updates, with some updating. But they were manned by that point by by a mi by mixed bags of Wehrmacht troops, and put up a very significant we're, we're a very significant challenge to arguably the best the best part of the U.S. Army in the last year in the the last months uh, of the war, where you know the the Allies had every material advantage. So the case against fortifications is, I, I think, tends to be, well, at any rate, overstated, as, as, as I said. The upshot of this is, and not that that, in, 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 not that that became, was a particularly, particularly material importance to the United States or to the UK, for, for that matter, or other Western powers in many of the wars of the post uh, Second World War, on account of the character of those wars, which were not 
high intensity peer on peer interstate and and the like so in effect i think although throughout the cold war all of the most western armies you know certainly the united states certainly britain maintained significant engineering capabilities felt that they were going to do defense airland battle which is sort of signature idea of defense of western europe which emerged in the from from the early through to the into the well really the mid 1980s through to the end of the cold war was essentially an idea about a fortified com- complex as the main defense against a hypothesized Warsaw Pact attack. But we got out of that habit in the post-Cold Cold War era. And such that, you know, it, investment in things like military engineering capabilities diminished relative to other, inst- other instruments. Things like, well, uh, a while ago, I mentioned the extensive character of current Russian uh, field fortifications, how rapidly those were built. And that is that is possible because Russia continues to have the have to, continues to use, continues to employ things like specialized engineering trench digging machines. You know, you can see these things were defi- designed in the 1950s. Most of them were procured in the late 1950s into the early 1960s. They're essentially 60-year-old vehicles, but they've got, one imagines, a good, a good number of them. They're very effective with, with one of these ditch-digging machines. You can, you can, you know, you can probably dig five, six, seven hundred meters of trench, depending on the ground, in an hour. You know, one guy, one guy in a, in, in a vehicle. Okay, so the West got out of the habit of doing that and convinced itself that for lots of reasons that it was able to fight and win wars decisively, ideally cheaply also, nonetheless, because of its superior ability to, 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 to maneuver, which in turn was, would be based upon its superior perception of the reality of the ground, the movements of the, en- of, of the enemy, the position of their own troops, and so on and so forth. That's, that's a logically powerful argument. I mean, it, and, and it had convinced, uh, it, it had many, many people convinced of, it, of its truth through the 1990s, even into the early, early 2000s. But ultimately, it was, it was overstated. It, it turns out that that the fog of war is rather persistent. And, you know, you lift it in one area and it descends it in another. Enemies are very creative. So if you find one way of dislocating them and you don't completely destroy them, they tend to adapt and figure out now how not to do that thing again. If you continue to repeat what you did before, they then develop very effective techniques for making you pay for hubris. For, for hubris. So... All I, all I would say essentially is that I, I, I think that they, the case for, for light, for agile, for maneuverist was over, has been overextended and overinterpreted and has resulted in, and its overapplication has resulted in forces which are too light. And, and also when it turns out, not all that agile. You know, I don't. I don't know anybody. I, I think there would be few people, for example, who would describe NATO operations in Afghanistan over a twenty-year period as being particularly agile. 
that was mostly static. Very, very. I think that's yeah. So, yeah. Get to your question. Can I ask? So this question of the the or this this assertion of the superiority of maneuverism has always been tied up with technology, right? Back to motorization and, and communicate radio communications in the middle of the 20th century up through, you know, I guess if we're going to go look for examples of penetrating fortifications, we would look at Iraq, right? Probably both times in Iraq, we have the U.S. military, Brits, others, very effectively and quickly punching through Iraqi fortifications. And that's tied up in technological advances on precision bombing, precision fires, right? And so an implication or premise, I guess, of the argument has always been that technology favors the offense, technology favors this vision of warfare. How do you assess, is it, is it that the pendulum has swung and you think technology, you know, the role of drones and observation for fires um, that we have in 2023 is now favoring the defense again, or is it just neutralized it as technology? Is, it, it, it's, it depends on who's using it more creatively. Like just speak to that dimension of things, if you would. Well, I think you 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 use the word pendulum, which begs the begs the question, or or rather suggests that you know the answer already. A, 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 a pendulum, pendulum by definition is a thing which swings one way and the other. And to 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 use the word pendulum in this context of the balance, let's say between uh, offense and defense, is implicitly to to suppose that it moved from one to the other. And I think, you know, it's perfectly, not only perfectly reasonable, it's perfectly banal of military history, to look back of, and on military history, to be a very long story of somebody coming up with a, an, an idea that wrongfoots or dislocates their enemy, and then people figuring out how to adapt to that or counter or do the same thing, and it swings back, back, back and forth. There's no doubt that in the case of Iraq, specific, particularly Iraq, Kuwait of 1990-1991, uh, there was, there was, you know, that was clearly an, an unambiguous, a clear and un, unambiguous demonstration of very superior capability on the on 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 the part of the the coalition in the attack there's no other way to interpret the lopsided casualty out, out, outcome right and not to mention the rapidity of the ground offensives and 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 the like and i wouldn't i wouldn't wish to deny deny that i'd also say that i think that is a reasonable description of, of a period where the pendulum had swung very quite hard to an extreme and also was that that war took place under a set of conditions which were pretty which were in their nature very favorable to the coalition arrayed against iraq there was the terrain itself being flat open untreed i.e so you know essentially quite hard to hide in and even when you dig in you know, you would create a, sig uh, a a signature on the ground that would be that was perfectly visible to aerial aerial observation and in a situation where one's opponent has complete air dominance to be stuck on the ground in static position that is positions that are observable from above is to be essentially sitting in your own grave waiting for the hammer to come which which 
which it did. No, but things didn't stay there. I mean, and in that in that case, and and the rest of the world, notably Russia and China, observed that and 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 took appropriate lessons from it. The second war, I think, in many respects, you know, kind of was a repeat of the first. It was in, in some ways even even less because unlike the first Gulf War where there was a, a very ex, uh, very extensive, very um, air campaign proceeding and fundamentally you know, the coalition forces were very large. These were mass arm these were mass armies. By relatively speaking, the the Iraqi the coalition forces that went into Iraq in March, April two thousand three were 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 quite small. I think in, in total they were probably what 63, 65,000, I think, something in 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 that order, if you count the US, UK, and a handful of other nations in, involved. And the rate of advance was was pretty extra extraordinary again. When it comes down to it though, Iraq was pretty prostrate by that by that by that time. It was essentially broke, was politically Moribund, exhausted socially. So, in in other words, the there were a number of uh, there were a number of points where it was reasonable to 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 think, well, something has happened here that has made Western armed forces equipped with these sorts of integrated digital, you know, allowing it to, capabilities, allowing it to to see, to strike, to move, all more fluidly and accurately had produced something pretty ex- pretty extraordinary and, and enemies enemies adapt to that and and they ultimately they can acquire uh, the same capabilities which brings us back to the the current conflict where I think one of the sort of intriguing things about the the confirmation of the Russian defense is the way, that one of the reasons why it has been so successful and of keeping the Ukrainian attacks in the crumple zone is that you know the Russians have the wherewithal now also to integrate fire capabilities to observe now these are coming and they're coming from low cost instruments which were available which would be available to a lot of players which is a long answer to the fact uh, to the my earlier statement that it's a pendulum it swings back and forth, and any technique, any any tactic or technique, if if repeated, will ultimately be adapted to. It'll stop working. In fact, and if you continue to do the same thing, it it, it will diminish. It will not just diminish in its effectiveness as your enemy adapts. It will become a vulnerability for for you. If you'll forgive me, one last question. I know we're going a little bit past the the time we had had discussed, but this is really really interesting. Sticking with Iraq for a second, I I take your point that you know it's it's hard as it were to draw, well, you can't draw eternal conclusions from anything, but it's hard to draw very firm conclusions on these questions of maneuver versus you know positional defense or something like that, given the fact that you're not dealing with two equal entities, right? You have even if it's a smaller force in this, in some ways the smaller force in the second example makes the case stronger. You have an enormous qualitative difference in both cases that scrambles the example. It doesn't make it a pure test. And so my question for you about 2023 is what what if what, what do you think would happen if we had you know a armored mechanized NATO force with all of the bells and whistles, aviation and so forth? 
conducting this offensive rather than a Ukrainian military that even with the support it's receiving has been fighting now for some time is, is I, I have this impression of the Ukrainians and Russians almost like two tired boxers kind of hanging on to each other. Is the success, my question is, does the success of the defense require, as it were, some exhaustion on the part of the offense? Or do you think if it, if it took the full brunt of a modern NATO attack, would it survive? It's a cute way of asking what should we be taking away from this as we look at it? What, what lessons should we be learning? Yeah, a friend, a good friend described the Russell-Ukraine war as two drunk dinner ladies banging at each other with, with, with breakfast trays. And his point being that there's not much you can take from this. You know, boxers don't watch, you know, professional boxers, boxers don't watch bum fights to get point, you know, to get pointers on how to win professional boxing matches. I disagree with uh, that, that point of view. And in response to specifically to your question, we can, uh, I think, hypothesize, let's say there was a large, a multi-divisional combined arms, you know, a effective professional combined arms force with an integrated supply chain, with capable command, with capable commanders, that was supported by a, a, a home population that was determined in its support of the war. You know, imagine. So, if we had a something something like the American Army, nineteen ninety, but fighting in the in 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 fighting with the sorts of domestic support that it enjoyed during the Second World War, and Russia was exactly what it, it, it is now, then, yeah, I think, well, that would certainly, I'm willing to, I would, I would suggest that, yes, they would have an easier time, or they would have performed better than, had, than have the Ukrainians thus far. That said, you have to hypothesize that force because it doesn't exist. What is this NATO force you're, you're, you're talking about? There isn't there there isn't one. The UK, the UK's main battle tank fleet is uh, I think on 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 the books is probably is something like two two hundred to two hundred fifty Challenger two tanks. Realistically, maybe one hundred and fifty of those are capable uh, of of operating. There, you know, and we haven't you know we haven't. Up, these are not Challenger three. We haven't gone through this this supposed updating to Challenger three status. So basically, these are 19, 1990 vintage main battle tanks in very low numbers, operated by uh, an army which is the smallest that has been since Cromwell. And the UK is, I, I think, still the 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 largest the largest. European military force. France may have surpassed us barely at this point. But at any rate, that's the state of affairs. The American army, aside from the fact that it's on the wrong side of the ocean, isn't in much, much better shape. I'm sure that the Americans can scrape together more of a tank force, more than, than, than can the UK. Bottom line is that you, you have to hypothesize this, this NATO force. It's not a practical it's not a practical reality. It doesn't exist today. So you, you want to ask, even if you take nuclear weapons off the table, which is stupid to do, you, you want to ask, what, 
how would NATO perform if NATO was doing the fighting against? I'm not sure that they'd do much better than the Ukrainians have done so far. The Ukrainians have been very adaptive, certainly extremely determined. Nobody, I think, would would disagree that they fought with very great determination and and, and valor and a, a good deal of creativity, despite which they've been hammered. They have been, and the result, I think, is 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 an, is inevitable. Russian casualties have been hugely exaggerated in the Western press, in large part because Western intelligence agencies act as the strategic communications arm, primarily. They're part of the information campaign. They're not part of, sort of they're not in the business of, pu- of making public valid intelligence estimates. That what they're in the business of is, is reinforcing communicate strategic stratcom's narratives, essentially. Anyway, that's sort of a, a long answer, but but the bottom line is, the question is moot because the 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 course that you that would be qu- re- required to make the to make the question valid doesn't exist. The forces which do exist, I don't think, are particularly more capable than the Ukrainians at at, at this point, and there aren't enough of them. And they don't have enough ammunition. Yeah. The, well, certainly. No, no. It was recently announced by the United States that it had the ambition by late 2024 to be able to produce one, 155 heavy artillery shells at a, at a rate of 85,000 per month by late 2024. I think, and that was, if I recall correctly, that would be multiplying current production by over five over five times. So you work out the math, basically. You know, currently we are we are we are able to produce what, relative to expenditure rates, is a trivial ma- trivial amount of, of of ammunition, and nobody's standing in place. It's not like the Russians are the, the the Russians are you know sitting back and doing nothing. They they are ramping up what already was a large production. It was estimated there was an estimate at the at the beginning of the conflict or towards the beginning of the conflict, when the artillery war was especially intensifying. And it was reckoned that, and, and so you'd have seen uh, reports that, that uh, Russian artillery, heavy artillery expenditure was, was hitting 50 or even plus 50,000 per day, which is a gigantic expenditure, we'll all agree. The assessment at that time, based on, based on, Reasonably secure estimates of the Soviet stockpile was that they could keep up that rate of expenditure for five and a half years without producing one new artillery shell. Me- meanwhile, they are producing artillery shells. Yeah. So there's a long way to catch up before before the West, NATO, has has an answer to an industrial mass-based attritional sort of warfare I, I think this war will continue for quite some time, but it'll be finished long before, long before, it'll be finished at any rate before NATO's uh, wanted conventional rearmament has even really begun. David Betts, professor of modern war at King's College London. It's been a totally fascinating conversation. Thank you for being so generous with your time and for, for coming on the show. Uh, you're welcome. It was a real pleasure. This is a nebulous media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.